Amen. Please, in your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark, and we're continuing uh, with, uh, uh, in Mark chapter 5, looking at, really, uh, from last week, uh, answering the question, who then is this? If you remember, at the end of Mark chapter 4, after Jesus stood and stilled the uh, wind and calmed the seas, the, the disciples uh, uh, asked themselves, uh, who is this then that can calm the wind and still the seas? Or still the wind and calm the seas? And, and so uh, we'll get a further answer uh, from, the, from the gospel writer, from Mark, in this next uh, uh, part in this text in, John, in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, where we're going to see, uh, we're gonna see, we're gonna see uh, the domain of darkness answer that question. That question is going to come from the domain of darkness, from, from the heart of hell, the answer to that question, who then is this? And so turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with the chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let us pray. Father, as we sit here this morning, as we're gathered together, and as we have heard your word read, Father, that we would prepare our hearts and minds to hear from you. That, Father, that you would speak to us about the deity, the power, and the majesty of your Son, Jesus Christ. That, Father, that we might see his beauty and his compassion and his love. 
that Father, that we might see his power and his authority. And that, Father, that we would respond appropriately as your people, as we lift up and exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You don't have to try very hard to imagine our world filled with evil and darkness. Just turn on the TV news, right? In the world, it seems that darkness grows more and more while every day the light fades. Or that falsehood appears stronger than the truth. Or that evil wins the day while good must take a back seat. Or that death and disease spread, choking out the life of all that is just and right and holy and beautiful. You do not have to try very hard to imagine this world because we live in it. We experience its effects. We suffer through the evil, the falsehood, the death, and the darkness every day. Just the decay of our bodies allows us to experience that. Just the lingering presence of sin reminds us of it. Our fallen world is full of darkness, full of the effects of sin and the reality of death. Death is all around us. Sin is encompassing us encompassing us, darkness seemingly overshadows the light. Yet it was not always so. In the beginning there was light, and God said it was good. In the beginning there was life, and God said it was good. In the beginning, in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve dwelt, there was truth, there was justice, and it was good. Yet we know from Genesis chapters 1 through 3 that darkness entered in. And when that darkness and evil and falsehood and death entered into God's creation, that it was marred. That the place of goodness and truth and beauty and light became the place where evil and falsehood and death and darkness seemed to reign. And despite the fact that Satan, the the father of lies, deceived Adam and Eve who sinned and disobeyed God so that sin and death entered into God's good creation, the story doesn't end there. Yet, how could the world go back to the way it was in the beginning when so much evil and falsehood and darkness had taken place and is still taking place in our world today? How could that what was made crooked be made straight and that what was lacking be counted? How could the darkness be overcome? Right there in the Garden of Eden when God curses Satan for his evil and Adam and Eve for their sin, he tells them how the story's going to end. That the darkness is only a passing shadow. For he will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Here in this verse from Genesis, we have what is called the Proto-Evangelium, or the first good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the, the, in this verse, we find that the offspring of the woman, being Jesus Christ, who bruise, will bruise Satan's head on the cross, and through the resurrection, he will overcome sin and death. He will overcome the darkness. So now the darkness must pass and a new day has come and will come. A new day when goodness 
will have conquered evil. A new day when truth shall reign over falsehood. A new day when there will be no darkness, for it will be eclipsed by the glory of God and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, his Son. For now, the kingdom of God and the reality of the darkness of this world overlap in time and space so that the darkness is still with us and our world still brims with oppression, injustice, war, crushing poverty, abuse, and much more. Our world is still full of evil and falsehood and sin and death and darkness. Though we have rebelled and caused this mess, God came in the person of Jesus Christ and he has overcome the darkness. Amen? He has overcome the Lord of darkness. Amen? He has overcome the domain of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of light. Amen? Amen. Sin and death entered the place of light, the place of goodness, the place of truth and life. But God entered the world through Jesus Christ and overcame the darkness. You know, darkness is a, is a word that used in the Bible that best describes our condition. And it describes the condition of the demoniac Jesus encounters in our text on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And here in the first five verses of our text, we're going to see that Jesus confronts our dark condition, that he confronts the dark condition of the demoniac. Having encountered a tempest on the sea at the end of chapter 4, Jesus encounters now a tempest on the land, a man who was a demoniac of demoniacs, a man who was possessed by an unclean spirit, who was under the control of Satan in the domain of darkness. As we look at verses 1 through 5, what we learn is that, that after stilling the, stilling the, calming the seas and stilling the wind, that they came to the other side of the sea. They, they came to the country of the Gerizines. It, it was a region that was controlled by the town of Gadara, which was one of the ten cities of Decapolis. Decapolis was the region they came to in, in the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee on the eastern side, and it was a region that contained ten major Gentile cities called the Decapolis. And so this is where they came to. It was mostly Gentile, a mostly Gentile area who were strangers. So it's made up of people who were strangers to the covenant God had made with the people of Israel. They were strangers to the promise of God. Therefore, they were strangers to the power and mercy and compassion of a loving God. And it says here that as soon as Jesus disembarked from the boat, Mark says immediately he was met by a demon-possessed man who lived among the tombs that were close to the shore, that, that he had lived among these tombs, had been in the mountains, and, and, and so when the man saw Jesus from a from far, he ran down and met Jesus at the shore as soon as they disembarked from the boat. Now Mark tells us about the condition of this man. He says in verse 3 that he lived among the tombs. He, he lived among the dead. That was his condition. No one, no one in their right mind lives among the dead, do they? Uh, only people who, who are out of their mind live among the dead, and especially for Jews, uh, that was a, a, a thing that you didn't do. You didn't touch the dead, and you certainly didn't live among the dead. So we see part of his condition that he lived among the dead, and it says that no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched 
the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. And then, then, then we see uh, 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 it, it summed up here for us. He says, he says, no one, no one had the strength to subdue him. No one had the strength to subdue this man who was possessed by demons. In fact, this man was so demon-possessed that no one and nothing could keep him under control. Even though they tried, they bound him with shackles, they bound him with chains, and yet he, he broke them apart with supernatural strength uh, that came from the domain of darkness. He was wild, he was alone, he was despair. His life was a miserable lot, so much so that he wanted to die, that he was cutting himself with rocks. He was cutting himself and trying to tear himself apart because of the condition that he was in. And, and so we see here, uh, night and day, he was among the dead, crying out to himself and cutting himself. We're described here, Mark describes here, here for us the full force of this man's condition. He was possessed. He lived among the dead. He cried out and cut himself. His crying out and cutting himself shows the desperateness of his situation. And not only did he, he, on top of that, for the Jews, he points out that he lived in a region next to pigs. That doesn't seem much to us, right? But for a Jew, that just was another point to show that this man's condition was bad, that he was unclean, possessed by an unclean spirit, lived in an unclean area, a tombs, next to that which was unclean that before God, this man was in, unclean, that his condition was terrible. Now I want you to know, lest we think that this is just a story, that a nice story that we can read and pass on from, that the domain of darkness is real and destructive. Though Mark has described here one of the saddest conditions of a man Who's, that a man has ever been in. We have, too, have darkness in our world today and are under siege by evil. Our condition before God, before Christ saved us, was one of hopelessness and despair, just like this demoniac. Now, maybe we didn't cut ourselves and cry out, but our condition was the same. We were unclean. Our condition was the same, that we were separated from a just, and holy God. Our condition was the same that we were controlled by the domain of darkness, by sin and death. And so darkness and oppression, spiritual oppression is real even today in this world. Several years ago I had, to, actually two decades ago now, three decades ago, I had to, it's been that long, wow, <laughs> that I had an opportunity to take a trip to China uh, with some college students, and, and we were visiting. Uh, one day, we, uh, uh, another campus minister and I, we were visiting a working Buddhist temple in the town that we were in. And the temple had been around for uh, at least a thousand years or more. It had been a working Buddhist temple for a long, long time. And, and we were visiting this temple, and we're going around, and, and we're seeing all the Buddhas and all the murals on the wall that predicted that we're predicting, not predicting, predict, well, that we're displaying, how's that? We're displaying demons and different pictures of demons and, and battles and stuff all around. And, and we're walking through and seeing all this. And of course, all the people coming in and they're doing their prayer wheels and they're doing their different things. And, 
And we walk outside, and Tim, he was the other guy, and I said to Tim, I said, that's the most spiritually depressing place I've ever been. It was so dearly depressing, I felt a heavy weight on me while I was going through there. And he said the same thing. He goes, Darren, I, I felt the same thing. You see, darkness, the domain of darkness is real. Satan is real, and Satan is destructive. And apart from Christ, people are under the effects of sin and death and the reign of Satan in this world. That is their condition. That was our condition before we met Christ. And so here we have, in verses 1 through 5, we have this condition of this man, uh, a condition beyond what we can even begin to think and imagine today, so much so that it says that no one could subdue him. But the second thing we see here in verses 6 through 13 is not only Jesus able to, to uh, uh, control, overcome our condition, we see here that Jesus controls the domain of darkness in verses 6 through 13. In verse 6, it says, And when this man, this demoniac, saw Jesus from a distance, he, he ran and he fell down before him. He, he ran down, uh, he responds to seeing King Jesus, and, and his response is, is to run to him and fall down before him. Now, he wasn't falling down before Jesus to worship him, but in recognition of who Jesus was, he fell at his feet and bowed down to him. He bowed down to him in recognition that Jesus was a king and he had authority over the domain of darkness. And so he cried out to Jesus, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. And so the demoniac, having bowed down in recognition of the fact that Jesus Christ is the king, the creator of the whole universe and has power over all his creation, he, he says to him, uh, he says to him, what have you do to me? And he recognizes who he is. He says out loud, Jesus, son of the most high God. You see, this is where Mark answers the question that the disciples asked. Who then is this? Jesus is the son of the most high God. And so in recognition of this awesome truth, which, uh, by the way, either inspires an overwhelming feeling of reverence in those who believe in Jesus Christ, or overwhelming feeling of fear in those who do not, the demoniac begs Jesus on the basis of who God is not to torment him. And so here's the thing in this, here we have a guy who, who's being spiritually oppressed uh, by Satan and his minions, who's controlled uh, by a legion of them, who, who runs down, bows before Jesus, and he recognizes who Jesus is, that he is the son of the most high God. And based on that, he, he even begs God not to torment him, which means don't destroy him or send him to the pit of hell or the abyss, as Matthew's version says. He, he, in Matthew's version, he begs Jesus not to send him to the abyss, the pit of hell. And so how ironic that the demons appeal to God to save themselves. Even though they don't believe in God, even though they won't worship God, even though they won't follow God, they appeal to him to save themselves, to the God they're unwilling to worship. 
And he makes this appeal, the demoniac, because Jesus was already saying, uh, right away recognized the man's condition, and he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. You see, Jesus is acutely aware of this man's misery and the condition that he is in by being possessed by the unclean spirit. And he right away has compassion on the man and, and was in the midst of driving out the unclean spirit before this encounter, before he has a conversation with the demoniac. I want you to know that Jesus is well aware of your condition today. He's well aware of what you're going through today. That he's, he's already responding before you even begin to ask or voice uh, what your need is. He knows. Just like here, he's already responded uh, before the man has even come uh, to the man's condition and started driving out the unclean spirit. He, but here we see this interesting conversation that he has with the demoniac. And so Jesus, here he asks him, uh, he says to him, uh, he says in verse 9, what is your name? And the demon replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. And so here, this just serves to drive home how terrible the condition the man was in. He wasn't just possessed by one demon, or five demons, or a hundred demons, but he was possessed probably by thousands of demons. Because the word legion, which is from, uh, which was a term used to describe a Roman unit of 6,000 men, that, that it came to mean many, or a lot right? But a lot, lot. Many, many. <laughs> and, and so here we're talking, he was, probably, uh, uh, he was probably possessed by thousands of demons. And so we see what kind of condition this man was in to be possessed by so many demons, so much so that he cried out night and day, and he cut himself with rocks. And so here in verse 10, we, we see the demons begging Jesus. They, say, they, say not, they beg him not to send him out of the country, again, to, to destroy them uh, or to send them back to, to hell in that. And instead, they ask him to send them to the pigs. He, they say, let us enter him. And, and so Jesus does that. He grants, grants their request, and, and the pigs run into the sea and drown because, frankly, pigs are just not good hosts for unclean spirits. That's just the reality. And so they didn't know, uh, they, basically they were just ran scared and they ran off the cliff into the sea and drowned. Now notice something here, that, that Jesus in dispatching them, he, he does it with a word and not with a magic ritual. In fact, later they're going to accuse him, uh, 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 they're going to think that Jesus is a, a magician. And, and so he does it with a word. Why? Because he is the creator over all his creation. He is in control, and that he is in control over the domain of darkness. And so he wasn't a magician trying to get demons to do his bidding, but he's the son of God who exercised authority over them. Now the big question, I know that many of you are asking, at, at least I asked the question, why the pigs? Why the pigs? I mean, it's a great waste of bacon. You know, but why the pigs? Why, why the pigs? Two things. First, it's a, again, it's a sign of Jesus' authority over the devil that he is able to send them to the pigs as they asked. And he could have sent them to the pit of hell, but instead he chose not to 
for another reason. One, to show exactly how bad of a condition that the man had been in and that he was delivered by Jesus Christ. You see, see the demons were trying to kill that man. That's what Satan tries to do. What, what, what does John tell us in John chapter 10? That's, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what they were trying to do this man, and they couldn't do it. And so when they went into the pigs, they destroyed the pigs and killed them. And, and it shows us just how bad the condition that this man was in, and yet he was delivered by Jesus Christ. But it also shows us the one who had the strength to subdue all things under his feet. It tells us about who Jesus Christ is, that he is the one in control of all things. But finally, I would say, to ask that question, why the pigs, is to identify willingly or not with those who are more concerned about their uh, material possessions than the fact that Jesus had just delivered a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. That he had just freed this man from his misery and his condition, and yet they were just concerned about pigs and not about the man who was one of them and who had lived among them. So the third thing then we're going to see is that Jesus not only controls the domain of darkness, but Jesus Christ cowers the ungodly in verses 14 through 16. Here we see a response after the pigs drowned, the herdsmen of these pigs, they fled, and they fled to the city and into the country, and they told everyone, and it says people came to see what it was that had happened. They probably didn't believe him, these herdsmen, and so they came to check it out and see what had happened, and they said they came in to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the, to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And so here we see uh, that, that, that once that had happened, they went and told everyone, and they came. And so what did they see? What did these people find when they came, came to see what happened? What did they see? Well, the first thing they saw was they saw a man transformed by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. They saw a man transformed by Jesus Christ. This man who had been formerly possessed of many demons was now, Mark tells us, sitting before Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Remember at the beginning that, that Mark had told us that no one, no one could subdue this man. No one could control his wild behavior, but yet here he was. So they couldn't help but see the redemptive work of Christ in a man whose life had been ravaged by the darkness, by hell and its minions. Now what does the phrase Mark says here, clothed in his right mind, tell us? It tells us about how the domain of darkness works on a person. It gets them not to care about their physical being, and it wrecks their mind. That's what Satan does. His falsehoods and his lies wreck our minds, and it gives us, gets us to believe that which is not true about God. It gets us to believe that which is not true about Jesus Christ. But it also tells us about the power of redemption in the gospel. You see, the gospel isn't just about getting fire insurance or to get a to heaven free ticket. It affects the whole person, their body, their mind, and their soul. That it, that it just doesn't get, redeem our souls, it redeems our very beings, our whole beings. 
That's why Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You see, that's what the gospel does. It affects every fiber of your very being. But the second thing they saw was that they saw a man who was able to subdue the forces of darkness. They saw a man who not only subdued the wild man, but he cast out the unclean spirits, and he had control even over a herd of pigs. And we're, we're told that having seen the man clothed and in his right mind, they became afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of the power of Jesus Christ. They became afraid when they saw the supernatural work that had taken place in the life of the man who was now seated and clothed and in his right mind. And just like the disciples, when Jesus had calmed the storm, they became afraid. They, they were, they were, they were uh, uh, confronted, you see, by the presence of the Holy One. They were confronted by the creator of the universe. And as I said last week, to quote R.C. Sproul, when the Holy One is manifested in the midst of unholy people, the only appropriate human response is dread, is fear, and so what do they do? They beg Jesus to depart from the region, and so he does. Because they couldn't take being in the presence of the Holy One. They didn't know what to do with the one who had the power to overcome the domain of darkness and to free the wild man from his condition. Also, we see here that instead of being thankful for the miracle concerning the man that no one can bind, they were really concerned about their own livelihood. They were more concerned with the material rather than the spiritual. They didn't rejoice in the fact that this man whose life and condition was so bad had now been, been transformed. They were more concerned about their livelihood. And so they fell short of the glory of God and they missed the salvation that could have been theirs in Jesus Christ by begging Jesus to leave. Finally, in verses 17 through 20, we see Jesus Christ commands the redeemed. Jesus Christ commands the redeemed. It says, and they, begged, uh, they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. You see, here's the, Funny thing, uh, the demon-possessed man knew what to do. He knew exactly what to do because the Lord told him what to do. And so the demon-possessed man, who, who was now healed, who was now uh, clothed in his right mind, he begged to go with Jesus, and yet Jesus tells him instead uh, uh, to go home and tell his friends how much the Lord had done for him and how the Lord had mercy on him by freeing him from this horde of demons. And so in this text, we, we find three responses. Uh, one, that we first response is from the demons. They beg Jesus not to destroy them. The second response is from the people. They beg Jesus to leave him. But here we see a third response from the redeemed man who begs to be with Jesus, but who instead Jesus sends him home to tell the good news. And so the demon-possessed man, the, the man who was now uh, clothed in his right mind, he went away, and he began to proclaim what the Lord had done for him. He first, uh, Jesus said, go home and tell your friends and family. But what did he do? He says he went throughout the whole region of the Decapolis, 
not just to family and friends, but anyone he met, he told them what the Lord had done for him, how God had mercy on him. And here's what it says at the end of the text here in verse 20. And it says, and everyone marveled, and everyone marveled. Everyone marveled because they knew the condition. You see, they knew the condition of the man before he met Jesus. They knew the status that he was in. They knew what he was going through. And now they see, they see the transformation standing before him. They can't deny that this man who was once possessed by many demons, who was uh, half naked, who was running around cutting himself, living among the dead, that they couldn't deny that now he stood there before him, fully clothed and in his right mind, proclaiming the praises of Jesus Christ. They saw the transformation that God had done in this man's life. You see, Jesus' deity, his power and his majesty were made known throughout the region by this man to those who were strangers to the power of God, to the promises of God. And it says they marveled. What will our response today be to the deity, the power, and the majesty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Three responses that I think that are appropriate for us who would name the name of Jesus Christ. As we look at this text, we discover that Jesus is the son of the Most High God, that he is the one who can subdue uh, all things under his feet. You see, the demoniac bowed before Jesus because he had no choice. But Christ, because Christ is the sovereign over creation, and he is sovereign over the domain of darkness, and, and, and Christ is our Lord, we have a choice, and so we willingly, and we should, our response should be that we should bow the knee and worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, that's why we gather every Sunday. We gather because that's the appropriate response to what Jesus Christ has done in our lives when he saved us from the domain of darkness, when he freed us from the effects of sin and death. The appropriate spot response is to come together as God's people week in and week out to worship him, to praise his holy name. And so we should bow the knee and worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the reality is whether we do it now, we'll do it later. Because it says that God has highly exalted Christ and he's given them the name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So our response is let us bow the knee and worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But the second thing we see as we look at this text is we not only see the deity of Christ, but we see his power, that he was the strong man who overcame sin and death, that he was the one who on the cross bound Satan. He overcame the darkness on the cross and through his resurrection that he he came, overcame the darkness in life. He is the strong man. Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says, Because of that, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And how did he do this? It says he, he did this. He, he did it by, by taking our record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, and he nailed it to the cross. 
And he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. You see, Jesus Christ is a strong man who overcame sin and death. And our response then should be to follow him, follow the one who has redeemed us, who has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's our appropriate response. It's not only to worship him, but to follow him. Just like the, uh, the man he, he saved here, who he redeemed in our text, who begged to go with him, and yet Jesus commanded him to go and tell his family and friends. He followed Jesus Christ in what he told them. And that's the appropriate response to those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, that not only has he saved us, he is our Lord, and we should follow him. But thirdly, we see the majesty of Jesus Christ. We see the majesty of a king who had mercy on, on one who was bound by evil and wickedness. And as we look at Christ's majesty here in our text, we see his compassion and his mercy. That's what Jesus commands that man. Go and tell him how the Lord has had mercy on you. You see, King Jesus had, had mercy on us, hasn't he? That he has freed us from the chains of sin and death. He has taken our darkened understanding, the futility of our thinking, the ignorance that was in us, and with unveiled face, we have beheld the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we can behold his majesty because he has opened our eyes to his beauty, to his righteousness and his holiness and his justice. And instead of being in fear like those who, uh, who don't believe or trust in Jesus Christ, we can, we can be uh, full of gratitude and joy that he has shown us mercy and that he's revealed his steadfast love to us. So our response then, just like this man, should be go, to go and tell family and friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go. Go and tell so that others may marvel at the Son of God and be delivered from the domain of darkness by his death on his cross and his, the resurrection from the dead. You see, that's the appropriate response to good news, isn't it? To tell other people the good news. To tell them what the Lord has done for us. You know, God has put us in this church here at North Stafford Baptist Church to push back the darkness that's in this world. To be Christ's ambassadors in the dark world. To be little stations of light in the darkness around us. And it's through the church that, that God pushes back darkness in the world. And so when we gather here every Sunday morning to worship God and we lift up high the Son of the Most High God, we are lifting up He who is the light of the world. And when we walk together in love and unity displaying the gospel through good works, we show truth and goodness and beauty and we invade every corner of the world with the light of the gospel. And when we announce the message of hope with our words, we expose the deeds of darkness, bringing light to desperately, des desperately dark places. You see, when we do these things, we show the world that that the world we show people that the world can go back to the way it was before darkness entered the world. In fact, the good news is it will go back that way. 
For the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away, and the darkness will be no more. For God has acted decisively in Jesus Christ, who has overcome the darkness of this world. As we gather here this morning to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper demonstrates for us how God has overcome the darkness in the world through Christ's death on a cross, through his body being broken, through his blood being spilt, that Christ has overcome the darkness. And he's overcome the darkness in our own hearts, in our own lives. And he's pointed us to a better way. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, think about how God in your life has overcome your darkness, how he's transformed you. Now, maybe you weren't in chains, at least not physical chains, but you were in spiritual chains, and he freed you. And so take a few moments uh, uh, and think about what God has done by Christ's death, by his body being broken, by his body being spilt, that we might have the forgiveness of sin. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to, to express gratitude. Maybe it's an opportunity for you to repent of your sin, to turn away from uh, the darkness that still exists in our lives because all of us still feel the effects and the presence of sin and death. And so it might be an opportunity to do that. So if you're here today and you're a Christian and you've been baptized by immersion and you're not in any unrepentant sin, come and join us at the table as we celebrate the one who has pushed back the darkness who has overcome the domain of darkness, and whom, whom we have the forgiveness of sins. So take a few moments and pray, and then join me at the table.